Welcome to The Daily Bite with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today we conclude the first epistle of Peter to the church. That would be 1 Peter chapter 5. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his, his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Peter begins this final chapter, literally his wrap-up, the conclusion here, by addressing, first of all, the, the elders, or as we might even say today, the pastors of the congregations in those five cities, encouraging them, like he has as a pastor himself, that they would shepherd God's people. Peter himself references the idea that he, just as he said back in chapter 4, verse 13, he is both a witness of the sufferings of Jesus and also gets to partake in the glory of Jesus. So, suffered with Jesus, and now he'll be, he will be glorified with Jesus. That is yet to be revealed, going to be revealed when Christ returns. We, too, although we may not think of ourselves as a, a physical witness to Jesus and the ministry that he had, because we didn't see it with our eyes. We are yet witnesses. That word witness in Greek is martyr, martyria, and, and it means to, to give an account. So we are witnesses of Christ. We give an account of the things that he has done. So pastors shepherd the flock with oversight, but not domineering. So pastors are to lead their churches they are to oversee things, but they're not to be controlling of the church. They're to do so willingly, kindly, is the way that you might put, put these, these words that we're seeing together eagerly. 
There's much work to be done. As we know in our age today, there is still much work to be done. We also know that we are short on pastors in our church body. And many others are experiencing the same thing. When the chief shepherd, a reference to Jesus, we are pastors like myself, we are under shepherds. Jesus has entrusted us with his mission in this world. When our head, when Jesus returns, he will give pastors who have been faithful the unfading crown of glory. We saw that unfading word a few chapters ago in description of really the the inheritance that was being kept up in heaven for us by God. Now the instruction then turns to the younger, that they would be subject to their elders. That kind of language actually does encourage you to think of this whole paragraph rather than pastors, the the elderly, as we might normally take them. But the, the idea of shepherding the flock does continue to point us back to the pastor's idea. That's why I went with that as we were unpacking it. But be subjects. We've seen this before, whether it was be subject to the government, be subject to uh, for the wife to their husband, for the slave to their master. This idea of subjection, that there is a, a, an, a, a, there is authority in creation, and God has given that authority. And because it is from God, we are to follow, we are to subject ourselves, we are to entrust ourselves to another. So be subject to these. The elders are looking after you. Subject yourself to their care. We are all called to humility. Elder and youth alike, be humble. We are called, that authority that Christ gives us is not an authority to, as it was before, domineer. It's a servant role. And when you look at how Christ led the church, he led by serving. And so we too are called to lead by serving. We are called to serve one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And I will try to remind you this every time I see this word in scripture, because pride is one of the chief sins in the American culture. We are taught in our our school system, our education system, that pride is this wondrous thing and that we all need to be proud of ourselves. No, 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 no. Uh, Pride is one of the great sins in scripture. Uh, It is pride that leads to our fall. It is pride that leads us to look to ourselves instead of to God and to our neighbor. So not pride. God opposes the proud, but instead gives grace to, he gives his gifts to, he forgives those who are humble. He saves those who are humble. The pride, prideful ones think they can save themselves. So very much a, a, a big difference there in between those two things. You get to verse six again, humble yourself under the hand of God. So subject now, not just to men, now we're subject to God himself. And why? So that at the proper time, he may exalt you. And this is twofold, this proper time of exaltation for you. It may be that God exalts you in the presence of your enemy. We've read examples of that in this book, that you are suffering at the hands of your enemy, and you are doing so gently, respectfully, 
you're doing so without fighting back so that they may see your good conduct and wonder what hope you have in you. You are doing so and the Gentiles way, the, the way of the persecutor is going to be put to shame. And so here we have this idea that God will exalt you. It may be in the moment of your suffering that God exalts you. He lifts you up. He causes people to look to you, whether it's others in the church or you know, so that they, they follow your example, as we, we can read about Peter and we can read that about Paul as well in their ministry. Paul gets, gets to talking about that very specifically in Philippians chapter 1. But it may also be that he exalts you that the persecutor will see you again, that they will see you, they will see your faith. So that's one way to look at this phrase of God exalting you. The other is to take the bigger picture. You know, if I were to ask your child, so you can ask your child this, when is God going to exalt you? When is God going to lift you up? And the bigger picture there is the, the promise of the gospel. It is the resurrection that Jesus Christ has already accomplished for us. Jesus is risen from the dead, and because he lives, we live. Because he was raised, we will be raised. That's the beauty of the gospel. We get to live forever. And so this exalting is God lifting us up out of the grave and unto himself. Cast all your anxieties on him so we do not need to fear. We do not need to worry. We do not need to be anxious. The common scriptural themes there because he cares for you. Jesus speaks this way in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. Uh, verses 25 to 34, that range. If you want to go ahead and give that a read together, sometime you cue it. Uh, it's good stuff. And then we have verse 8, that we are to be so reminded. That's the third time that we've now seen that instruction in the, in the letter, which again, clear thought. Don't be so overwhelmed in your sins that they are controlling you. Instead, keep your mind uh, focused. Keep it firm. Trust in God. Verse 8 is much more well-known for the rest of it. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's a vivid image. I mean, you've seen lion behavior probably in TV shows or documentaries, maybe the movies. Some of you have seen it by going to the zoo and seeing the lion in captivity. But you can see the, you can picture the, the lion sneaking up on its prey, and then pouncing. The devil is sneaking up on us. He's trying to sneak up on us. So we are called to be alert. We are called to always be ready to give that reason for the hope that is within us. Peter takes this in the suffering direction again. The devil might be trying to use suffering to cause doubts among the Christian peoples, that by your suffering, instead of being brought closer to Christ, the devil is trying to use it to cast doubt. Does God really care about me? That fits in with the previous verses up in verse 7. So, Peter's encouragement, know that this is happening to Christians around the world. Which is very true. Christians around the world, even this day, are still experiencing intense forms of suffering for the sake of Jesus and his name. 
verse 10. Great words of salvation there. That God will restore you. He will confirm you. He will strengthen you. He will establish you. So he's going to restore you. He's going to make you whole again. After your body has been broken down, God will rebuild it. He will restore you. Then he's going to confirm you. He's going to confirm your salvation that you have in Jesus Christ. And he's going to strengthen you. Uh, he's going to give you the strength needed to continue to live every day for the rest of forever as he establishes you, as he roots you, as he plants you into his new kingdom, the new heaven, the new earth. The final greetings, the last couple of verses there, Silvanus is another Christian, uh, this time a scribe, one who can write, and so he records the word that Peter wants to have written. So Peter dictates, and Silvanus writes it down. And then you get the instruction to stand firm in the faith. We see this kind of instruction numerous times from the apostles. Uh, ignore false teachers, stand firm in the faith. That's the same, same language here. Verse 13 Babylon is a reference to the Christians in Rome. It's a reference to the great persecutor of the church. So Babylon coming in and destroying God's people, Judah, and tearing down the temple and taking the people into exile. The Romans are going to persecute God's people. They're going to tear down the temple in 70 AD rather than you know, the old temple that was torn down in 587 BC. So it's been a few centuries. But the parallels are there. But this reference then, this Babylon, this reference is to the, the church in Rome. So she who is at Babylon. So not Babylon. She who is at Babylon. So the church, the Christians who are gathered in Rome, that church, the ones to whom Paul wrote the, the epistle of, of Romans, they greet the church, the churches of Asia Minor, Turkey area. And so does Mark, my son. That does not necessarily mean a physical son, although Peter was married. We never learn anything much more than that. But it is usually regarded here that this is a spiritual fatherhood being referred to. So this is Mark, who Peter brought up in the faith. Peter served as a a pastor to him, a spiritual leader to him over the years. And then the letter ends just as it began. Peace to you, which we saw back in chapter 1, verse 2. Indeed, the peace of the Lord, which surpasses all understanding, be with you and with your family. Amen.